The title of our message this morning is Born to Be Our Peace. Born to Be Our Peace. I want us to consider this morning the text that we opened our service with today, a text that you you might have heard throughout this Advent season. If you use an Advent devotional, you've probably read it, but maybe never given really deep thought to this text and what all it might mean. What we started this morning with was reading Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This little town of Bethlehem that we've been talking about all throughout our series, it really was a very small, insignificant place in Israel. This verse is acknowledging that here at the very beginning. When it says, you, O Bethlehem, are too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah. What what exactly is that saying to us? Well, it's actually a direct reference back to other places in Scripture. If you were to go back all the way to Joshua chapter 15, you would find that when the people of Israel were entering the promised land after the the exodus, they were beginning to take possession of this place God had promised them, the land gets divided up among all of the tribes. And there in Joshua 15, there's a long, long list of all the cities that belong to the clan of Judah in the territory that's given to them. But Bethlehem is not named among them. If you go a little forward later into the book of Nehemiah, when the people come back from exile, another list is made of the cities that they come back and and retake and repopulate there in the land of Judah. And Bethlehem is not named among the cities. These two lists are what's in the background of this statement here. This really clear objective proof all throughout the ages that Bethlehem is so small and so insignificant that it won't even show up on the census lists that the people make. Like, imagine what that really means for just a moment, right? That an entire people, that a government even, knows a place exists, knows that they're there, but thinks so little of it that they don't even bother to write its name down. I mean, that's... That's pretty amazing, right? You and I, we might be, well, we might be actually kind of happy if the government decided not to put our property on a census list so they're not taxing us, right? (laughs) But that would say something like, yeah, we know that you're there and we don't care at all about you. We don't even count you among our citizens. This is how Bethlehem was thought of. So little, so small, so insignificant, they didn't even bother to name it. And the list, if you go all the way back to Joshua chapter 15, the list that's given there, it's pretty extensive. There's over 115 cities named in that list, but Bethlehem's not one of them. So it shows just how clearly this little town of Bethlehem really was thought of so little as so insignificant in that day. Now, you and I, we know what's an important place, and you and I, we've spent several weeks to understand that while we have this vantage point of looking back and knowing what God was doing through Bethlehem, nobody at all was expecting it when Micah said these words. You and I, we spent the last several weeks being amazed at how this was the place that Ruth came to. In that wonderful story where she met Boaz and then gave birth to the the grandfather of David who would be anointed the second king of Israel. This was the place he grew up. These were the fields he shepherded at. This is the place his anointing happened. 
you and I can read the prophecy of Micah and think, yeah, God really chose Bethlehem for some incredible and amazing things. And we're not as surprised by it now, but that's only because of our vantage point in history. For Israel, for the people who lived in that country, no one would ever have guessed God would send the Messiah to Bethlehem. So Micah says, You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, he then says these amazing words that we'll consider today. As we think about this little town, I want us to again hear this key point that I think should encourage our hearts so much. God chooses unlikely things so that he only, he alone, can have the glory. You know, Bethlehem, I I talked a little bit about this last week and compared it, but I want to show you that in a little more detail today. There, There are absolutely no glorious, amazing human achievements that took place in Bethlehem. Nobody would ever go, yeah, you know, well, it's because of the great city we built or this wonderful natural resource we have here or these wonderful, incredible people that, that we have, have built uh, up in this place and all the things they've accomplished. That's why God chose us. No, it's just this little town in the middle of Israel that nobody thought was really spectacular in any way. And if you compare it to other places in the world, that really becomes quite apparent. So when I was in Israel, of course, I spent time in Bethlehem for several days. But then we also got to go to to Greece and spend time there. And so one of the sites we visited in Greece was the ancient city of Corinth, the same Corinth we find mentioned in the New Testament, same Corinth that received two letters, right, in the New Testament. And there, if you go to Corinth, you can see such grandeur and splendor of the things that were built in Corinth, that it's really astonishing to the human mind. I have a photo for you of me in Corinth here. This is in the, the ruins of, Cor- of ancient Corinth. You can see behind me that those uh, columns that are there. These are the remains of a temple that was built there in Corinth to one of the, the false gods that they worshipped, Apollo. And they made that, that temple there, those those pillars still stand from it. They had no power tools, right? They had no heavy equipment to lift things. They couldn't do computer renderings and figure out, you know, the best way to do it. It was just the skill of human hands and human strength. Limestone, beautiful, even since about 560 years before Jesus was born. So if, if we were to, to think God is, is like us, looking at the external, looking at things, looking for something grand and spectacular and amazing, a place really fitting of the Messiah to come, it wouldn't be a little place like Bethlehem, which has nothing like that. It would be a place like Corinth, which was already... I'm not talking to my watch. It'd be a place like Corinth, which already had amazing things happening in it hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. But it was to the very people who lived in that city of Corinth who got to see that temple, not as the ruins that it stands as now, but in all its grandeur and all its splendor, to the people who lived there and witnessed that, Paul would later write these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is how God works in the world. 
He does not do what we would expect. He's not like you and I. He's never impressed by human efforts and strength and wisdom or riches. In fact, last week in the text we talked about, when he spoke to Samuel, he told Samuel very clearly, I don't look at the outside of things the way you do, right? So God chose Bethlehem precisely because we would never have chosen it. And that's, I think, encouraging to us today. Maybe in human wisdom, Maybe according to the way the world looks at things, you yourself feel foolish or weak or insignificant or overlooked or like your position's too low or you're too despised for some reason. And you think, you know what, that must mean God can't do great things through me. The, the, the big things in history that, that people will look back and, and recognize that God was at work, you know, th- those will happen through other people, not through me. But the text of Scripture, even in what we're looking at here, the fact that God chose Bethlehem, that God chose a little shepherd boy who had lived there in Bethlehem, that God had used a Moabite widow who was an outsider, who would have been despised and hated by so many, that God chose those unlikely people should encourage you and I today that God delights in choosing the unlikely so that he would receive the glory. So rather than distance ourselves from the plan of God or think we are disqualified somehow from what God is up to in this world, we ourselves should recognize God delights in using the most unlikely of people. And so we should say the words of the prophet Isaiah, Hear my Lord, send me. Use an unlikely place. 5.2 becomes very specific in revealing some incredible things about what it is God will do through this one who's going to come in Bethlehem. Look at the text again, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So what is this second part of the prophecy here when he says, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth from me? What, what I think is being described here, was being said by God here, that you and I need to kind of dig in and do a little bit of work to understand so that we can feel the amazement and the awe and the worship that this text would produce in us, is we need to see the unity of God and the intentionality of his plan unfolding just from these words. So I've shared this story um, with you before, I think, and, and I think I talked about it in, probably in, in the most detail in a series we did in 2019 on, on the Trinity. But for many of us, I, I think there's a temptation to kind of divide God and view the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, in, in some unhelpful ways. So this is illustrated for me every time I think about it really well through a friend of mine back in my undergraduate studies at, at CBC. He would explain very, very passionately and very directly, which was a, a trademark of, of how he acted all the time. He was a very confident individual even when he was wrong. But he explained that he thought of God the Father like, you know, the boss. He, he's kind of distant, kind of cool. He's a little bit angry and really pretty quick to want to strike down people who, who are doing bad things, right? He's just utterly holy, and he's looking at us, and he's a little bit disgusted by how messed up we are. 
And then he said, you know, but I think of Jesus like, like he is the best of, of friends, right? I mean, this, he is the one who's full of grace and love and affirmation. He's like, he's with me all the time. He, he delights in me. We're, we're good. And he's kind of holding all that anger and disappointment of the Father at bay for me. And he, he would describe the Holy Spirit kind of like, a, like an energy source, the one who you could go tap into and get the, the authority and the power to do supernatural things and do signs and wonders and, and miracles. You just had to kind of figure out how to, how to get that, and then you could do all these great things. And he was really, really passionate about his understanding of things and really thought he was so deep and insightful on all of this. The thing is, basically everything he just said about the Trinity was wrong, <laughs> And I think while he's, you know, a little extreme on how he was saying it, many of us can feel tempted to kind of think of the persons of the Godhead in that way. People tend to view the Father as kind of harsher, more angry, uh, more, more wrathful. I mean, you've heard people talk about, well, the God of the Old Testament, you know, he seems really angry and really harsh, right? That's kind of the view people take of him. And Jesus is usually seen to be the embodiment of love and kindness and forgiveness, kind of laid back and gentle. And maybe when you think of Jesus, you know, despite the fact that he was a a Jewish man, somehow you believe he had white skin and feathered hair and blue eyes. You know, that's another wrong view of Jesus, but that's a different sermon. And depending on the tradition you come from, maybe, maybe you think the person of the Holy Spirit is something to kind of neglect and kind of ignore, or you lean into, like my friend did, this idea that he's kind of an energy source, a little bit more like the force in Star Wars than the third divine person revealed in the Scripture. But if you notice what's said here in this prophecy that comes from Micah, he says, From you, O Bethlehem, shall come forth from me. Now, I want us to see that because what's being said here is the Father is the one speaking, And is making very, very clear that the Son coming is not Jesus being nicer than the Father. It is this plan unfolding for the Father to send the Christmas story to come out of pity to us and deliver us while the Father's looking the other way. Like if you're familiar with with Greek mythology, you know, the story of Prometheus, he defies Zeus and goes and steals the fire and brings it to earth because he has pity on humanity. That's not the biblical conception of God and the plan of salvation at all. Jesus wasn't on some kind of behind-the-scenes mission doing something the Father was like, you know what, I think I'm just probably going to end this whole humanity thing. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to go save them. And, you know, off he ran. That's not how this worked. The Father himself is the one who loved us so much that he created this plan of salvation. He wanted to redeem us. He wanted to save us. He had this deep love and compassion and mercy. So he himself sent his Son who came willingly and eagerly to accomplish this great work of salvation. Jesus testifies to this unity between he and the Father, this unity of love for us, this unity in the plan of salvation. In that wonderful passage in John 6, right? Jesus says in John 6, 38 to 40, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, there's this perfect unity in the Godhead. 
The Father is the one who loves us so much that he would send his Son, born of the Spirit, in complete agreement for everything that needed to be done, everything that had to be accomplished, planned by the Father before the foundation of the world. When you and I think about the coming of the Messiah, to be born in this little town of Bethlehem this time of year, as I stress every single year, Christmas is touching on very deep things throughout Scripture and human history. We look at the bigness of the Christmas story, how it fits into all that God has been doing. You and I would have such wonder and awe and worship in us that nothing else could steal our focus this time of year. But unfortunately, I think we get to the Christmas season, and maybe because of the familiarity, maybe because of all of the trappings of the season, maybe because of how busy we make ourselves, maybe there's any other number of reasons. Unfortunately, I think what happens is we get to the Christmas season and we think too lightly. It's a story about a baby born in a manger. Some angels showed up. That was cool. They were shepherds. And when we treat this story at this surface level, and we don't dig into the deep, deep things this Christmas narrative touches on, well, we end up having a month filled with disappointments and distractions and delicious food and wonderful events, but things that are kind of unsatisfying by the time we get to January, right? But if we come back to Micah 5, and we look at this prophecy, and we begin to unpack what all is conveyed in these words, We find this one who is coming from the Father to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It reveals to us a picture of Jesus that is far, far more than just a beautiful baby born in humble circumstances in a really unlikely town. Now, this one who is coming in this manger is the one born to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, what that tells us are two more incredible truths about Jesus. First, he is the one who is the true ruler, the true king. Again, putting it in the context of the unfolding story of God's work in history, he's the fulfillment of the Davidic promise that God will establish a kingdom without end, a ruler who shall reign eternally, one whose power and might will never be overcome, whose kingdom will expand and expand and expand, never to be defeated. You know, it's really, it's a big thing. It's a, it's a great theological truth that we sing of in songs this type of year. Like in We Three Kings, when we sing the, the second verse, if you ever sing the second verse of We Three Kings, it says, Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never over us all terrain. This is a powerful verse to sing and declare. And when we say he was born a king, on Bethlehem's plain, we are making a pretty profound statement about who Jesus is. Spurgeon, you know, I, I love Charles Spurgeon. He lived in England, and so, of course, he lived under a monarchy, and he, he thought more clearly, perhaps, about kings and queens than you and I do from our cultural context. But Spurgeon made this great observation about how monarchies work and how people are born into monarchical lines. He says, Men are not born king. Men are born as princes, perhaps to become a king one day. Perhaps they become a king at some point in their life. But this is not the case with Jesus, is it? 
See, rightly do we say he was born a king, for he has always been the one true king. He's always been this one eternal, rightful, ruling king of kings and lord of lords from all eternity past and will be through all eternity future. This is a a profound thing that we sing of and we declare about Jesus, that he, though he entered in this little manger, in this unlikely town as a tiny baby, was born a king, for he has always been the true king. Second, this text tells us, as I bring up every year, sermon after sermon, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecies given from ancient times. All the way from Genesis 3.15, at the very start, the fall of mankind, sin entering into the world, Jesus is prophesied and promised to us in that early text. My friends, we should be in awe and wonder and filled with worship every Christmas season because Christmas is the culmination of God's surprising and mysterious plan of salvation unfolding in history. It's far more than just one amazing, holy, beautiful night. It is a night that stands as this crescendo of history building up to it. But the question that so many struggled with in Israel's history was always trying to figure out where, if this is true, if this has been promised for so long, why did it take until that time when he finally sent Jesus? Why did it take so long? I mean, didn't generation after generation of people who waited but never saw the Messiah come give some room for doubt about this promise? Doesn't the reality of such darkness and despair in this world make it hard to believe and have hope in such a promise? You and I can ask those same kind of questions today, right? I mean, we believe in the fact that Jesus will come again. Advent for us is a celebration of what has taken place and also a looking forward to what will happen again in the future. We believe in the first Advent and look forward to the second Advent, but it's taking a long time, right? And just like the people in Israel's day saw such darkness and despair and felt the effects of sadness and sorrow and sickness, it led to questions, and it can for us too. But Micah gives us great hope, because if you understand the context of Micah and when he is writing, when his ministry takes place and his prophecy is given, he's speaking at a time when there is great darkness in Israel's history. Enemies are right on the threshold. They're coming for Israel. Micah will live and minister through the fact that while the kingdom, it's, it's been divided uh, for, for quite some time, he is living at the time when Assyria will come and conquer the northern part of the kingdom and take the ten tribes into captivity and take them off into exile. His prophecy comes to explain to the people what is about to happen. The divine judgment is about to befall them. It will be dark. It will feel for generations. But in the midst of him telling the people that, it will come finds them again. There is hope to hold on to. And these promises that God has given will come to pass. He says in Micah chapter 5, verse 3, a text we don't often read when we look at the prophecy of 5.2, Therefore, he says, he, the Messiah, shall give them up, his people up, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Verse 3 here is a promise of hope, a long-reaching promise, though. In the short term, there is going to be darkness and loss and tragedy and judgment because of the sins of the nation of Israel. That is what takes place. 
But Micah is pointing out that the Messiah is still coming. And when he is born, he will save and he will deliver and he will one day set all things right. Eventually, Israel will be drawn back to their God. And this is another sermon to get all together entirely. But I think this is what Paul's picking up in Romans chapter 11. When he's dealing with this same type of question. Okay, but it's so dark, it's so... It's so difficult in this life, and so many have rejected him, and, and even Israel as a nation has rejected the Messiah, so does this mean the promises of God have failed? And, and this is what Paul picks up in Romans 11 and says, no, in fact, there's hope coming, there's redemption coming one day for Israel. They will turn back, they will be drawn back to him. This promise will be fulfilled, but like I said, that's, that's a whole other sermon. This morning, I want us to focus on this, and I want us to see the next two lines Because it's all part of this prophecy that Micah is giving us here. It's not just 5.2. It runs all the way through verse 5 about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Micah 5, chapter chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 says, And he, this Messiah who shall come, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they, his people, shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. See, that's, that's the theme of this fourth week of Advent. Look, isn't it? That Jesus is the peace that we need. Jesus brings the peace that we are longing for and looking for. See, Jesus comes as the eternal king. He comes as the, the preexistent one, the everlasting one, the one who is spoken of, the one who is planned to come from before the foundations of the world. And when he finally comes with this eternal majesty and strength of who he is, he chooses to stand not as an imposing figure, but actually to engage his people as a shepherd would his flock. We talked this morning about how unlikely it was that God revealed the birth of the Messiah to shepherds. And yet, it's very fitting. For this text tells us that when the Messiah would come, he would be a shepherd to his people. But this aspect of Jesus and who he is really should be just as awe-inspiring and worship-producing in us as the choosing of Bethlehem to be the birthplace. That Jesus would come as one who loves and tends to his people as a shepherd would a flock. Means he's, he's committed himself to be close to us, to take care of us and our needs, to lead us and guide us personally. This is what a good shepherd does, to tend to our injuries when we are hurt, to seek us out when we wander away in our infinite stupidity. To come and protect us and defend us when we place ourselves in harm's way. Because of who he is. Because he is truly the good shepherd. He's the one who can bring true and real lasting peace into the lives of his people. So as I say every week in this Advent season, if you're looking for the things that we talk about this time of year, if you're looking for hope, love, joy, or peace, from any of the trappings of the season, the events or the meals, the gifts, whatever else it may be, you're going to be disappointed. Because whatever you can find in those things is fleeting. It will disappear, probably before the calendar even turns to 2023. Nothing you can get or nothing you can give to someone else is really what you need unless it comes from Jesus.
He is the one who is sent from heaven by the Father as the fulfillment of the plan established before the foundations of the world to come and redeemed, lost, broken, hopeless, unlovely, joyless, peaceless people. And by being the the shepherd who would sacrifice himself, lay down his own life for his sheep, Jesus saves. And so he radically changes then his people. This is what the wonder of Christmas really is. That God has been working in such an incredible, surprising, unforeseen way all throughout the history of this world leading up to this moment where right here in this room on the other side of the world more than 2,000 years after the events in Bethlehem, there is still peace to be found from this one who came to the tiny stable in Bethlehem. But it only comes to those who know Jesus is the fulfillment of the plan long foretold. Jesus is the Son sent by the Father whose love for us was so great. Jesus is the one who was born as king and rules eternal. Jesus is the Savior whose offer of hope and love and joy and peace still extend to all today who would come to him and place their faith and trust in him alone to remove their sins and give them eternal life as his free gift. As we head into this last week of the holiday season, your calendar, like my calendar, may be, may be fairly full Longer than some of the others. I think probably everyone planning your celebration bit time uh, out of their normal routine, though. So you're probably planning your celebrations and your big events. You're, you might be in the process of getting all the, the gifts finished up, wrapping to get put under the tree. I'm blessed in my house. Malia's been doing all the wrapping, and I think she's, she's pretty much all done. It's a good thing she does all the wrapping, because I wrap like a child, and it, looks, it doesn't look good. Um, so my, my MO, if you get a gift from us, and it's in a bag... That might be an indicator that I put it together for you because that's, I can do that well, put a bag in it, you know. But if it's wrapped and it looks nice, it was definitely something she wrapped. But this week, you're probably doing all those things. You've got lots to do. We've, we've got things to do too. We're, we're planning out the meals and all the things, families coming, all that great stuff. But my hope and my prayer for you, my hope and my prayer for, for us is that our focus in these next seven days would go beyond all the trappings of the season all the way back to this little baby who came in Bethlehem as the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of the plan of salvation, so that these next seven days are filled for you and for me with wonder and joy and awe and worship of this little baby born in the little town of Bethlehem to come and be our true peace.